the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson. Big week here on the show. Big week at CBS Sports in general. On the college football side, Coach Rankings Week. Every single offseason, we sit down and we rank all of the Power 5 coaches 1 through 65. Now, thankfully, with uh, Lance Leipold being hired at Kansas, you, you can hear any of the 45 minutes of Kansas football discussion that we've dropped on the podcast in the last month or so. Uh, just go check it out in the feed. With that set, we are able to rank all of them. Uh, the ballots were sent out to members of CBSSports.com 24-7 Sports. The story is going to be compiled by Tom. And while the rankings will drop on Tuesday and Wednesday on CBSSports.com, today we wanted to give you a little tease, a little bit of a preview, a discussion of how we rank coaches. And then Tom, who has seen them, and he sent me an email, Tom, I have not opened it. I want to have this be like a true surprise uh, when they do uh, drop in for our discussions. I didn't want to have any of it, any of that information locked and loaded. But Tom has the rankings uh, as he continues to prepare that story and uh, his mentions for everybody who is upset that their coach was, uh, was or wasn't ranked at a certain spot. So I wanted to kick off this discussion with the idea of how do you rank coaches because it is it, it it's great that it's entirely subjective you know everybody's got their own value system everybody's got uh, their own accomplishments that they put weight on sometimes it's it's more intangible and over time you know these coaches that have been around in multiple stops for multiple decades even you kind of see stocks rise and fall uh, I pulled up my own ballot before uh, we got into this conversation so I could at least go back and remember how I ranked coaches for this exercise. And I, you know, just because like one coach is at, for example, 21 and another coach is down at 40, I kind of think those coaches are the same, but we've got to slot them. And sometimes splitting those hairs and doing those tiebreakers is really, really tough. So in general, if you could uh, sort of formulate an explanation or at least a starting point for how you go about these kinds of exercises. How do you rank coaches? Well, I start at Nick Saban. Yes. <laughs> and then I go with Dabo Swinney. And then I go from there. That And that is how I rank coaches. It's, I don't know. It's, it's a difficult thing to figure out because like there are, so many different ways. And I think really everybody that does it is probably doing an amalgamation of every single way and just kind of personal preference, because like if you approach it from a sense of, well, I just rank them by based on who I would hire. I think that's a good starting point, but I also think that that doesn't take considerations because maybe then a 35 year old wonderkind who hasn't really accomplished much, but looks promising suddenly becomes, you know, moves up ahead of a more established coach who's more proven. And I think that if you're trying to rank like coaches who, you know, as far as what they've accomplished, then that kind of pushes more accomplished guys further down than they probably should be. And it probably pushes some younger guys with more potential up higher than it should be. So I, I try to take an approach of saying, okay, Nick Saban is at Alabama to win national titles. This coach is at, you know, mid tier power five school, to develop players, get up to the NFL and get to bowl games. And I try to see like what their objective is. And then somehow I just try to figure out in my mind, who's better at accomplishing their objective. I think that's a really important split though, right? Because 
you know, if at a certain point, if you're just ranking accomplishments, there's sort of a baseline that, you know, like Mark Richt, right, is is always going to have better results at Georgia than Bill Snyder did at Kansas State, for example. But Bill Snyder wasn't trying to win national championships at, at Kansas State. And in, in putting my list together, uh, I just looking at the list I, I submitted, I, I felt really good about like my top 13 or 14. And I also felt pretty damn good about like my bottom eight or nine here. Do you go inexperience? Does that, because remember, this is a power five coach ranking and almost like we talk about with NFL draft. If you are being ranked on an NFL draft board, you are awesome at football. Like if you are being considered to be a professional football player, you are good. If you have made it to the level of being a power five coach, you have done something to inspire confidence at some point in your career that you are worthy of not one of the 65 best jobs, but for the most part, the better jobs at the FBS level. And so I, I know for me, the bottom sort of becomes a lot of the new arrivals. Especially the new arrivals who were hired and the, the rationale for it was our boosters loved him when he was an assistant here, even though he's never been a coordinator or head coach anywhere. You know, like granted, Dabo wasn't either and, and he worked out great. But like there are some examples uh, like that this year where I'm just I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt necessarily. Uh, especially if they don't have that track record, you know, from before. But I, I think Tom just nailed it. it you, you have, you have guys with, with really different objectives. They're not. I'm not going to say they're not playing the same sport, but they're, they're playing for it for a different prize. And so I, I do give the tie break to to the guys who are having to, you know, to, to play at that highest level. It's always the, well, hey, if if you know if, if you took Jim Grove away from Wake Forest and you put him at at Miami, would he win a national title? Based on how he does with, with limited resources, sure. Uh, but re- recruiting at that level is a whole different ballgame. And that, that's, a, that's a separate skill to have. And I think one that you have to measure coaches on too. I absolutely, I think this is such an interesting discussion too, because it's very easy to go to the resumes and be like, well, Nick Saban's the best, right? And it's hard to argue against that. How do you, how do you argue against him or Dabo or Lincoln or any of the coaches that are having success right now? But if you give me a guy like Pat Fitzgerald, who's had as much success as he's had at Northwestern, consistent success at a place with significantly different resources. Now they have nice facilities now, but different challenges as far as recruiting goes, like less talent on the roster. Like find me a coach that maximizes more. And isn't that what being a great coach is about is maximizing the talent you're given. So I think it's a very interesting discussion to have and then it comes into like because there are different styles of coaches some are ceo types and they build a program and then they delegate i mean that's what i played for at bobby bowden who i would consider one of the best coaches of all time um there are other coaches who are extremely hands-on and want to be in on everything want to micromanage and are all you know i see saban out there coaching technique still uh during camp working with some of the secondary players so i think it is an interesting dynamic i personally i think i've said this before on here always kind of give more and I want to give more credit to the guys like Pat Fitzgerald, like a David Shaw, you know, like a David Cutcliffe who's under a, you know, he's had a rough patch here at Duke, but it's done a pretty good job winning there at a program where traditionally they don't. So I think it's like, how do you balance those things together? Which is why I think Matt Campbell is kind of in a sweet spot at Iowa state because it's not perceived as a powerhouse program, and yet you don't have no chance either. So it's like that's probably like the sweet spot of where you want to be, where you could really kind of have the boast of Beth Worlds. You're perceived as a great coach because you're dealing with less talent, except you still have pretty good talent. I'm so oh, go ahead. No, well, the only real pushback I would have on Danny said, I, I think he made a really good point, is that it's not just what you do with the talent you get; it's also the talent you get. Because unlike in the NFL, your job is also to get that talent in. So, I mean, I, I there are some schools that you could put the best recruiter in the country there and they're still not going to move up that much because of, of the limitations. But I, I think you do have to include you know, recruiting and recruiting you know, prowess and running a recruiting organization as, as, part of your, as part of your formula here, right? Because otherwise, I mean- I, I didn't. Like you would, you would not like my ballot because my well, ballot. You have Dan Mullen as like a top four coach, then? No, but I have like he just mentioned uh, Fitzgerald, and we do this every year. And because we do it every year, it does lead to some wild fluctuations. It's like the guys that have to do eleven mock drafts or power rankings every single week. You just kind of have some reactions. I got Fitzgerald at number six. 
And I think that right now he is peaking. Like if we just look at where he's got that program, the success that they've had, getting to the Big Ten title game in the last couple of years, like, yeah, I'm, I'm soaring on him. David Shaw, like I as a whole, like that would be David Shaw is, might be somebody that I'd be more interested in hiring than I've got him in my rankings. I've got David Shaw down at 51. I think his stock is falling. And that's and just kind of... Uh, the the read and react. But, you know, the fact that I'm high on guys like Dave Clawson, Bronco Mendenhall, uh, I've got Kirby Smart down at 17. Kirby Smart's not 17 if we really put recruiting into the forefront. Right, but that's, that is part of the job. Right. That's, I'm just saying sure. like, our, this is our, our, the difference in like the, how yeah. much you weigh in all the different buckets along the way is that, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I've got like a, a Tom Allen ahead of Ed Ogeron. Let me ask you guys this then. How much weight do you put on, like, would you want to hire them right now or historical achievements? Because there are certain guys who, you know, have been really good coaches for a long time who are, look, maybe not on, on the, you know, on the final lap, but they're, they're not peaking right now. They're, they're sort of just, you know, maintaining or, or you know, slightly downgraded. What, what, what did you do with that? Like, did you guys look at it as, hey, I want to hire these guys right now? No. But like Mac Brown, I'm basing him on what he did at North Carolina to like turn things from Larry Fedora and get it moving back in the right direction. He's getting credit for that. And I'm not ignoring the national championship, but it's not part of my thinking. I'm thinking about him right now. See, I, I, there's probably more weight on how things are currently for the coach, but I take the whole thing into account more because I don't think like even if, you know, a coach with like, multiple conference titles, but he hasn't won one in five years. Well, he's still won multiple conference titles, which is more than a lot of the other coaches say. So I think that accomplishments have to matter. That said, it's not if, you know, if you're coming off of three losing seasons, those conference titles from five years ago mean a lot less to me than they probably would have five years ago. And at the same time, I use it more kind of like in a tiebreaker sense, because like, like we've talked about, like with ranking teams and these coaches, you get past a certain point and you're really just splitting hairs with it. So for me, I think that's where that kind of stuff comes into play more. It's like if I'm looking at 35 versus 36, I'm trying to say, oh, is this coach better than this one? Like, well, this one's got multiple conference titles. This one doesn't. So I'll put this guy ahead of him. What about you, Danny? Are you are you big? Are you like where are you right now? Stock price at the moment, or are you looking at everything? No, because I try I try to take in the whole body work. Like to me, if I'm judging Mac Brown, I would judge his success at Texas. Mm -hmm. Like I would, and his first stint at North Carolina. I think you look at now. The sad thing about the state of coaching right now is that like we were talking about, you know, a team three years five hundred or like probably not lasting at a lot of these programs. Like, so that might cost you your job, even if you did have an incredible run of success before that. So I try to look at the whole body of work. The other thing I learned that even a top 15 ranking in this list, when it comes out is no guarantee of future employment. I, I was just looking at Tom Herman was 15th, I believe on last year's preseason, like, Hey, this, this discussion right now, and now not even in college football anymore. It's kind of crazy. Les Miles was the tough one last year. Do you take the success that Les Miles had at LSU and do you allow it to boost his stock as Kansas's coach in these rankings heading into the 2020 season? I think it did prove what a lot of people thought of Les Miles and why LSU eventually got rid of him was that he wasn't maximizing the talent that was given him. And then all of a sudden you give him less talent and it's like, eef. Then it's like this big reveal of what Les Miles, the coach, really is. Is that fair or unfair? Fair. I think it's There's fair. There's also, fair. you know, what also comes into play in this, and it absolutely should not, but it probably has to do with recruiting. It's likability. Like it's so like it's a personality matters. Not one of us, and I'd be curious to know where you guys have a guy like Dave Dorn, who's done a fantastic job at NC state, but because he's kind of boring and doesn't give you a lot of great quotes, he never comes up in a lot of conversations. Now he, I'm not saying I'm not making the case for Dave Dorn to be a top 10 coach, but he's a really good football coach. Yeah. He is a really good. Half. I've got yeah. a 35, like right there in that middle pack of like 10 to 15 just coaches. Co just average dude. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's, look, that's good. <laughs> That is yeah. a good thing. Like if you can be like a middle of the pack power five coach for 10 years at a power five program, you're doing something right. I, I, I think I factor in recency more. Um, 
just just looking at my list, like I I had Dave Doran over Dave Cutcliffe. Yeah, same. And like, that was recently. Who's a better coach right now in my mind? If I had to go make a hire today, I'm I'm not hiring you know Cutcliffe over him. Um, you know, like what what do you do with Shiano? Oh, way low. First time at Rutgers, really good. Been out of the college game for a while. Like that, that was a tough one for me. How much? I didn't have him bottom ten, but you know, I've I've got Shiano hanging out near Scott Frost, whose stock has been plummeting. Oof. I mean, he wow. gets he and gets. That's tough too. Like what he did at UCF, <laughs> that was a pretty incredible run. It was but man, awesome. It's off. Um, Tom and I normally uh, bump heads on this on some of these. Like, uh, I've got. I've got Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day in my top five. There's nothing about their, like, they do not have the track record or the resume. You know, it's just been, like, such a small sample size. I am overreacting to that small sample size based on the success. I know that they were 16-year-olds that got a brand-new Cadillac from their parents. But you know what? They haven't totaled it, okay? And, in fact, they're doing pretty good at keeping it between the yellow and the white. And so, I, I just, I've got a good feeling about not only what we've seen so far, but also with the trajectory, maybe with some of these small sample size, recent hires, uh, I guess maybe I'm buying into the hype on that one. I mean, Tom, are you, are you still like on the lower side for a Ryan no. day or a Lincoln Riley? Okay. No, they're, they're both up there now for me too, because the only reason I was holding out on them was, well, I think I can't remember where I had Riley last year, but he was up in that spot last year. Day was the one I was still lower on than everybody else. But my thought was just, okay, you inherited the program from Urban Meyer. I need to see you actually run it for a little bit before I'm just going to assume you're a great coach because you're at Ohio State and you have a great team. He's had two consecutive playoff berths, <laughs> nearly beat Clemson in his first one, crushed Clemson in the second one, got to the title game. Okay, you've been maintaining it. I'm bumping your ranking up. Now, honestly, the recruiting has been even better. Yeah. You know, but but yeah, like I, I think that's fair to look at these guys who inherited and say, wait, how, how sure are we that they're not a Larry Coker? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I feel I'm Coker proof in my sure. rankings, so that way I could look back and be like, see, I wasn't <laughs> jumping the gun like you idiots. Well, Riley and uh, Ryan Day also are the offensive whiz kids, right? Because they they're coming in there and it's it's what's in vogue, and they're they're getting offenses that are gonna like be among the best in the country. Uh, all of those things are gonna be. Uh, probably taken into consideration is there uh is there any so in just a little bit uh tom again the only one on this podcast who has actually seen the final rankings tom has five coaches that he thinks are going to be very interesting we're going to discuss the five coaches we don't know what their final ranking is going to be uh, we're going to do that here in just a little bit but is there before we uh tackle some some headlines from over the weekend and late last week is, it, is there any one coach like Bud that you would you would add that you're a little bit curious that you want to you, you're going to be interested to see where they land on the final uh, on the final rankings? Sure, um, Scott Satterfield. What, what was a tough one for for me to rank? I, honestly, like for me, I I could have taken thirty to forty five and thrown them in a randomizer and been just as happy with my results as as the results actually had. Like I don't really. I mean, like Pat Narduzzi or Paul Christ, right? Like different situations. One is kind of set up by Barry Alvarez with, with that program. Basically, everybody who goes in there and follows the blueprint does well. Gary Anderson didn't follow the blueprint and, you know, <laughs> left. Uh, there, like, Where do you put like, like, like I can't, Kelly? I can't tell yeah. Scott. I can't tell a Louisville fan when a Louisville fan is mad when I say that I had Scott Satterfield at number 36 on my ballot and be like, are there 35 better coaches than Scott Satterfield in the power five? No, but there's probably like 22 better coaches than Scott Satterfield. They just happen to be T23 and this ain't a golf tournament where everybody gets paid out for like what your <laughs> like t- tied number is. And Scott Satterfield, in terms of my own personal opinions, even higher. Like I was listening, they didn't have a spring game and I had to do a bunch of like ACC spring storylines. And basically the only thing I had to like go off of was a press conference that he had after their 15th practice. And I loved listening to him talk about his team. I thought he was very honest. He gave like a good analysis. He described what they, you know, what they're going to want to do, what they're expecting from different players in their running back rooms, where some of their shortcomings are. It was a very honest assessment of where that Louisville football team was. And I really appreciated it as somebody who uh, covers the sport. But I imagine if I'm a fan, I appreciate that too. Scott Satterfield, my own personal rankings would be much higher, but 
we're also, you know, comparing him against, uh, you know, multiple years and long stretches of power five experience, uh, conference championships at the power five level. Like it's, it gets really difficult, uh, right there in that, in that middle portion of the rankings for sure. I will say, well, I will not reveal where he is ranked. He is in that 30 to 45 range, but uh, <laughs> same. Yeah. I, I, yeah, this is, this is going to be fascinating. I also think that if, if we did this as a tiered ranking thing, I, I think we could actually even have a little bit more clarity. Um, I don't know that ordinal ranks is is the way to go for this, but it, it is a lot of fun to talk about. I, you know what I mean? It's just like, what, what's the real difference between like 30 and 40 as opposed to like one verse 10? It's the way to go to get me yelled at on Twitter for like right. three weeks because people think because my name's in the byline that it's just my rankings. Yeah, we got, I got to make sure that our podcast audience understands this because, man, Tom really... He takes it. He's he's like sitting there drawing the sword as the uh, the enemy, like you know, is attacking. It's it's uh, you 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 really are are a brave brave man out here yeah. in these Twitter streets to be the the person with their name on the byline. Hashtag mutant move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coming up on the other side, we've got a new commissioner in the Pac-12, and we had some thrilling thrilling twists and turns and a finish. In the Division One National Championship over the weekend, we'll get into that and the five coaches to keep an eye on when the coach rankings are released on Tuesday and Wednesday. Next. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Pac-12... when they when they hired Larry Scott, Larry Scott was coming from USTA. It's going to be an outside the box hire. This is going to be a way to really modernize and and move forward. And the commissioner searched to replace him. At one point, involved a co commissioner pitch, which you know, I I didn't. I didn't feel like that was going to be the best play, but sure enough, uh, at the end of last week, uh, the Pac-12 does end up making the news official. It is going to be George Klyovkov, a 54-year-old coming in from MGM, a lot of uh, startup experience. He, you know, I was I was trying to get his pronunciation right, and. Thankfully, when you're like, uh, you know, big investment startup guy, there's there's a lot of videos of you on YouTube, like pitching virtual reality. So I got to hear him actually say his name as uh, one of his companies from a few years ago was a part of it. So he was the president for of entertainment and sports for MGM Resorts International. He takes over uh, beginning a five-year contract on July 1, you know, unanimous support from the Pac-12's presidents and chancellors. So when it, in his press conference, the, the big takeaways, I think, were number one, acknowledging the struggles in the revenue sports, in men's basketball and in football, and in number two, uh, being all in on the idea of college football playoff expansion. Shocker. Um, so what what's the thought? Because you know on paper, you could say you just tried to make another outside-the-box hire. We were excited about Larry Scott. It didn't work out. You know, what, what, what suggests that this might not – that this might work out a little bit better where, you know, the ACC just makes uh, an athletic director a commissioner. That's a traditional conference commissioner hire. Uh, what do we think of George Klyovkov uh, taking over in the Pac-12? I think 
I mean, it's it's one of those situations. He's got enough experience in what he's done at his previous jobs where I think this is a hire with the TV deal in mind more than anything. Trying to make sure that they get the best deal they can for the television and the distribution of their network and just for their games to help increase the revenue going to the sport. And I think that he's definitely got the experience and the understanding and the contacts that industry to help the Pac-12 do that, at least maximize what the Pac-12 can get. As far as everything else, it's kind of one of those situations just like i don't know we'll wait and see because like you said this is an outside the box hire there is no real experience in the you know athletic department kind of academia part of the world and doing that and we have seen like with larry scott that backfired we kind of saw with the big 10 at, at the early start of course kevin warren got thrown into a really crappy situation in that hey welcome to the job here's a pandemic figure it out but you, you've seen problems there with communication between that and the school. So there's probably going to be kind of a rough patch kind of start trying to get acclimated to the world. And I don't want to jump out too much, but my concern overall is just the background that he has. Like, obviously, he comes in and says, you know, we need to expand the playoff. Well, of course, the Pac-12 is going to feel that way. The Pac-12 is one of the conferences that is continuously left out. So, of course, they're going to be all 100% on board with the idea of expansion. It's just... When somebody comes from like that Vegas kind of casino background, entertainment background, I worry about them thinking about what they need to do too much about to get new people involved and a lot less concerned about the people that they already do have involved. And then I sometimes worry about what that means for the actual sport. Like we're seeing it in baseball with Rob Manfred, where he's far more concerned with fixing what the perceived things that are wrong with the sport than just selling what he has. I, I think this is, a hire that is very reflective of Larry Scott, right? Larry Scott did some decent things as commissioner, but overall his tenure is going to be viewed as a failure because the PAC 12 had, I think we would agree probably the, like by far the most ambitious uh, you know, plan as far as marketing their, their rights. They ran their own TV network exclusively and, and just straight up Larry Scott was not a good TV executive for them. Like that, that was not something that he had, the, the right kind of experience for. And it was a little bit weird that they tried to launch what they did given, you know, what his background was. So I, I think, do you guys recall when, when the PAC 12 was kind of out there with this weird idea of going with co-commissioners? Mm-hmm. I, I thought they were going to get somebody who had serious like TV executive experience, which this guy does. Um, and then somebody who probably has some experience on the athletic director side. So I, maybe they'll still hire somebody maybe as his number two, who is very much sort of the, the school liaison and allow him to look big picture for TV stuff. But I, I think that's why, why they went uh, with this. Yeah, I, I totally, but I think you make a great point because I think most people are like co-commissioners. What are you guys doing? Like, you're really going to screw this up. Like this is the dumbest idea you've ever heard, but I like, why, why even go, why even announce to people what you're thinking about doing? If you're going to do that, why not just have a number two, a, a vice chair or whatever you want to call it that would assist because Clearly, money, revenue should be the Pac-12's number one priority. Like, you want to fix your problems, pour a bunch of money into them. Although, don't do it with an office in San Francisco, right? Like, let's 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 get out of that lease which they had. Um, but I think, for like, because it does make sense. Like, if his background is media, and he's gonna, and he's got, a, you know, a history with dealing with Major League Baseball and the NBA and some other professional sports leagues. Like, that's great. Like, he's got connections at the TV companies and he can negotiate this deal. But a lot of these TV contracts are 10 years. You know, what do you do the the day after that is inked? (laughs) You know, like, can I sign up for that deal? I mean, it feels like, you know, some of these agents in our business that take commission off the length of the deal must be a pretty sweet gig because then you never hear from them from another five (laughs) years, however long it is. I just do the deal. But I do think, like, he does need somebody with knowledge of the college athletic world and how to do what makes a conference commissioner good. Um, and Larry Scott was not it, but I mean, I, and you know, I think you look at probably the cream of the crop is um, Sankey and the SEC and he's done an outstanding job. And there have been some really good ones. I mean, there, but I think he needs somebody to kind of help him navigate that. Like, what is my job after I do that? You know, how do I, how do I make our conference relevant again? How do I embrace some of these things? And I think one of them, and this is one of the things I was excited about it, with the the Vegas connection being at MGM, already having negotiated and brought, not negotiated, but helped 
um, put on the, the men's and women's basketball conference tournaments in the Pac-12 in Las Vegas. Like to me, boom, get the Pac-12 football championship in Las Vegas, like priority number one. And then maybe embrace gambling unlike any other conference has. And the NCAA might push back on that, but you say, you know what? You guys don't even matter anymore. Like start to do things and embrace some things differently because the Pac-12 is in a position where they have to kind of swing for the fences at some point. I, I agree that Sankey is a, is a good commissioner, um, but I also know like he was really set up with the keys to something that was just absolutely humming. And, mm-hmm. you know, Mike's live. One of the major reasons why the SEC has just absolutely taken off is that the last two SEC commissioners got all the other schools to stop ratting each other mm-hmm. out for the most part. Like we have had unprecedented labor peace basically in the SEC, especially amongst the, the big boys, right? We've seen some of the smaller players get hit with some sanctions, but the ones that are the true money makers who can get to the playoff, who can win playoff games, they don't really get hit with any kind of violations at all. And I think a lot of that was the previous commissioners telling these guys, Hey, don't like handle your business in house. This is a family. Right. And we keep family things in the family. You know, and maybe the ACC would have gone TV exec had uh, uh, Phillips, right? Sorry, yeah, Jim uh, Phillips. Uh, excuse me. H- had he not been available, but most everybody like who I know thought that the Big Ten was going to hire Phillips. And mm-hmm. they thought it was like a no-brainer that the Big Ten would hire him. And then they went really outside the box, I guess. And so the ACC was like, well, it's almost <laughs> like when you're in a fantasy draft and somebody you know, passes it? on Mike Trout. And you're like, okay, oh, all right, well, if I have to. <laughs> I'll go ahead and take him. Like when Ronald Acuna falls to you at number seven, and you're like, mm, "All right." Yeah, well, I, I mean, if if you if you're gonna make me, sure. Because I I thought that the the example of the pandemic. This was a, as the search for the ACC commissioner was ongoing. I said that the what the the disunion that we saw, even like you know within the Big Ten and um you know presidents and athletic directors not being on the same page that having somebody that had been in those rooms in those conference on those conference calls and understands the delicate line you have to toe between the the media rights part the athletic directors and then the university side I that's why I kind of thought the the Jim Phillips hired by the ACC was like okay well you're getting somebody who is who's been in that and he's done it at Northwestern which means he's had to really balance the the academic side with the athletic side he's overseen a lot of expansion and he's got uh, this was something he mentioned on a uh, call with reporters on Thursday you know he was in there from the start with the Big Ten Network you know he's he saw exactly you know how things uh, grow and that's those are that's all experience that I thought that. Because uh, we couldn't see the Big Ten get on the same page, and we saw the you know the SEC seemed to be all moving in the same direction, hand in hand. ACC all moving in the same direction, hand in hand. It, it definitely revealed how we cannot predict a pandemic, but there will be challenges that conference commissioners need to face. Where part of effective leadership is just going to get everybody to agree with each other. But I had not thought about the SEC just stopping to rat out, uh, ratting out on each other. And I don't know why I didn't, because it's, it's true. It's true. I'm guessing. And it's also like hilarious, but also very, very impactful. Right. I mean, I just look at the seventies and eighties. Like, am I being naive? 90s. Okay. So that yeah. was the it. SEC was constantly turning each other in for stuff. And you'd be like, Oh damn it. Like if we could only get our stuff together and our best <laughs> program wouldn't go on probation for eight years. Like, and then all of a sudden mid nineties, kind of especially late nineties. <laughs> everything just they, they they started being quiet um by the way isn't mgm the official gaming partner of the nba like i i i like that in this guy's background i also liked um that he was part of the mlb advanced media deal which mm-hmm. if you guys are familiar with, with with that sale they were so far out ahead of everybody else as far as their mm-hmm. tech you know get, getting off platform tech going uh like that was absolutely huge and so i I do think that his TV experience matters here, but uh, experience in, in a variety of broadcast mediums is, is and especially some of the, the newer emerging markets is is key. Also, I, I, c- I could be wrong here, but I think during his introductory press conference, because this was something I was definitely on the lookout for, he never said the word disrupt. And that was my <laughs> biggest fear with the Pac-12. I do think it's interesting, though, because the Pac-12 clearly has its issues and we're all panning this higher and a lot of people have and talked about it and we're dissecting it. And he says, you know, hey, I'm going to, you know, we want to make football and bas- men's basketball a priority. We want to get good again. We want to do these things. And it's like, all right, 
well, how? And we could almost do a whole podcast on like, well, how are you going to fix the Pac-12? Because I'd be curious to hear your guys' ideas. And maybe it is a separate podcast, but it's a massive task to take on. And like, how do you, it's going to take time. Like you're not, it's not like all of a sudden he's going to get hired and yay, USC or Oregon's going to win the Pac-12 and get in the playoff. There's literally nothing he can do in the f- near term that's going to ensure they have that success. I mean, you can, I, I think the one thing that did bother me about Larry Scott, I never heard from him get vocal or irritated. Or I remember the first, in the first two years they got left out of the playoff, he's like, well, we have a system in place and they judge the final four teams. And if you're not one of those, I'm like, you should be banging the table for expansion right now. Even if you don't really mean it or believe in it, you should be making the case for your conference needs to be a part of this. And that was very frustrating to watch. So I think that's an interesting discussion of what do you do to fix the to fix the Pac-12. Add it to the ideas tab on the planning doc, Danny. You just <laughs> no, gave us summer a pods. Jam. Here we come. You just gave us because that is yeah. I mean, us in my head, I was just starting to like run through an entire list, but I want to give it some more thought because if we can just sit down and, and pitch some ideas on how to fix the Pac-12, uh, that would it's it's uh, it's his. It's George Klyovkov's challenge right now. He's having those same discussions. He's having those same. Uh, he, he's going to do the SWOT analysis with everybody on the uh, on the staff. He's gonna he's gonna have the no bad ideas whiteboard out there. Um, so may, maybe we'll have our own little um, we'll have our own little group. Cons- well, a consulting company. Uh, we'll see. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll tack it on uh, over the weekend on Sunday. Sam Houston, South Dakota State, uh, the FCS National Championship. I, I did like the branding of it, the NCAA and all the logos, the calling it the Division One Championship, which is true, but, you know, I guess Alabama can kick rocks. We're all about Sam Houston here at the NCAA. It was it was a wild game. So there was total downpour in Frisco, Texas, uh, right as the game is beginning. Um, South Dakota State star quarterback Mark Gronowski, the conference offensive player of the year, on the very first drive of the game, he's on a quarterback run, kind of lands funny as he gets tackled. He's knocked out of the game with a knee injury. So South Dakota State's offense takes a huge uh, hit. And then Sam Houston, uh, has uh, a fumbled snap out of shotgun, then a fumbled snap on a punt, both leading to to easy short fields. But on the second time, South Dakota State can't move the ball in this pouring rain. They try to kick a field goal. They can't handle the snap. I mean, this was just all bananas. Then finally, lightning, not finally, but a lightning delay comes, an hour and 11 minutes. And when they come back, clears up and the game takes off three lead changes over the course of the final two and a half quarters. They go no halftime, uh, which, you know, three minutes, three, three minute minutes. halftime. <laughs> so the, like, you know, Sam Houston finishes the second quarter strong, starts the third quarter strong and, and just gains a lot of momentum. But I mentioned the uh, star quarterback, Gronowski, being out for South Dakota State. Uh, Isaiah Davis running like a man possessed, uh, the, the running back for the Jackrabbits. Breaks off a couple of long runs, uh, scores two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. This thing goes back and forth. Sam Houston uh, with the late touchdown, I think like you know, 15, 18 seconds remaining when they finally scored it. It is the first National championship and program history for Sam Houston. Sam Houston coach KC Keeler becomes the first coach to win two FCS championships at two different schools. He did it at his alma mater, Delaware, back in 2003, and then gets it done here with Sam Houston. Uh, Sam Houston, remember under Willie Fritz, made it to the championship game in back-to-back years, 2011-2012, both times falling to North Dakota State as they started to get off on their run. Uh, there was you know, just a very cool Jacquez Ezard a transfer from uh, Howard, had an, a huge game, and uh, sort of like changed the whole dynamic of the way that South Dakota State had to defend the, the Sam Houston offense. But I... I mean, I, I thought that it was uh, a very thrilling uh, completion to the Division One college football season. Curious if you guys got any eyes on it or if you guys had any thoughts on uh, on the Bearcats and the Jackrabbits. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. I, I So I actually, I went to Naples this weekend, had a road trip. My daughter was in a golf tournament. Oh, where'd you play? Uh, Royal Palm Golf Club. Okay. 
nice little course. They had a beautiful practice facility. Um, so her round finished up at one. It's about a two-hour drive. So I was anticipating getting home in time for the second half, maybe the fourth quarter even, just kind of taking our time, and I'd get there for the good stuff, right, and, and get there. So I get home, and I flip on the game, and it's like mid-second quarter. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, another long five. Here we go. College football needs to speed up the pace. And then I start watching, and I'm, you know, oh, they had a rain delay, so I'm figuring all this out. And then the game just kind of took over and it was fun. It was a little bit wonky. Players are slipping all over the place. You know, Grinnell, you have backup quarterbacks playing. My overall takeaway, you guys tell me if you watch the game, and I don't know if it was because of the videos they kept showing of it, but do they not care about protecting the quarterback at the FCS level? Crushed. Because Eric Schmidt was getting, I felt I was watching Danny Warfel on the other side because when I was at Florida State, I used to watch our defense just light him up and was like, ooh, like that's tough. Like today's game, it just felt like the refs were like, let him play. And he was a free for all. I mean, that dude, for the performance he had, I mean, shout out to him because that was phenomenal. And he kept getting back up and kept, like, making incredible runs. He had three touchdown passes, the game-winning t- Like, it, all of it, I thought was phenomenal. Like, I'll remember that kid for a long time for that performance. Did you hear the report that he was spitting up blood on the yes. sidelines? Yes. <laughs> Just- it's unbelievable. And he's, like, getting drilled. He's, like, coming down on his shoulder. And they're, like, sandwiching him in well beyond – like well beyond what is acceptable in today's and and I'm old school. Like I'm all about letting them get hit and stuff. But I was like, I guess they just don't have that rule at the FCS level. He is you remember, listed uh, at 180. He is listed <laughs> at 180 at like six two, and he was getting pounded. Sorry, bud. Do you remember what what Mickey Andrews uh, said about the uh, about hitting Warfel? Was it the echo of the whistle? Echo of the whistle. Bobby? Yeah, play, yeah. play to the echo of the whistle. Yeah. <laughs> And there's no doubt they did too. Yeah. He's, he's, I think it was like uh, sort of the idea that because Schmidt is a dual threat quarterback, the refs have just decided he's a runner. Like at all times, fair game. You can hit him uh, however. Okay. So uh, Tuesday, we will get the coach rankings 65 through 26. Wednesday, the top 25. Remember, these are all of the Power 5 coaches. Uh, Tom writes the story. We all have all voted in this process. Tom is the only one who has seen the results. So, Tom, as a, as a nice little tease for our listeners, and on Wednesday, we will be back reacting to the total composite list, and, uh, and, and maybe we can even like send it out ahead of time so everybody can prepare their takes. Uh, but obviously, according to company policy, it will be marked as confidential. Um, Tom, who are some of the the names that stood out to you that you think are going to generate uh, some interesting discussion among the fans when they see where they are ranked? Well, I, I'm i going to name them in alphabetical order as to not to tip our hand as to where they are ranked. But one of the cases I think is interesting, at least to me, I don't know how interesting it'll be to everybody, but for me, going to what we were talking about earlier with how you try to figure out how you, you view a coach, this is a case where it's like recency bias definitely plays because – Brett Bielema, if you look at his time at Wisconsin and Arkansas, I was interested in seeing where he would rank now that he's come back and he's taking over at a job at Illinois, which isn't really considered, you know, a top power five job. Because if you look at his success when he was at Wisconsin, he won, you know, he won three Big Ten conference titles in a row. He went to three Rose Bowls. At Arkansas, he had their last winning season in the SEC. And although the last season there was poor, he went one and seven. He won more games at Arkansas in his four years there than they have total. You know, he won three times as many conference games in those four years as they've won since they fired him and he left. But he's been gone doing the assistant thing at the NFL level. So it's going to be interesting to me to see where he stacked up compared to other coaches who probably haven't accomplished nearly as much, but are just kind of fresher names. And I think that'll be interesting when the rankings come out. Uh, Clay Helton, I think, will bring up some stir up some debate as far as where he's finished what do you, what do you got 65 <laughs> I, I got cannot, it. I no cannot. i'm saying your personal vote you could tell us yours we know where you stand i will say <laughs> that aside from the three new coaches well no there's i'll just say there aren't many coaches ranked lower than clay helton yikes on my rankings i got clay helton at 42 and i know it's too high but it's just, it's, that's uh, where it landed. You know, like 57 here, I, I group them, I group them by tens. You know, I go in, like I do the top 10 and then I list a whole bunch of twenties and a whole bunch of thirties and a whole bunch of forties. And because I'm a nice guy, I don't even get to fifties. And so I'd have to turn forties into fifties. 
Clay Hilton, nice guy. Uh, Bielema, by the way, I got him at 26. I'm clearly just blinded by the Wisconsin success, for sure. Yeah, I, I kind of discount the Wisconsin success a little bit. Basically, everybody who's followed the Barry Alvarez blueprint, um, there's a lot of people in the industry who think, you know, as long, you could stick a lot of dudes in there who have the exact same success if you follow the Alvarez blueprint. Like, that's what Tennessee was trying to do, allegedly, with Fulmer, right? That was mm-hmm. kind of his pitch as an AD, some people in the industry were thinking. Um, and at Arkansas, I, he probably did a better job at Arkansas than I gave him credit for. Uh, but I, I basically everybody who's followed that blueprint, you know, that Alvarez sits out wins the exact same thing that Alvarez did, right? So pretty much. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Or excuse I, me, that, that, that Bielema did. I right. think, I think, I think if I'm going to rank Wisconsin coaches, I think I'd have Chris ahead of Bielema. Yeah. So my, my other concern with Bielema is, can he win with lesser players? Like because Illinois being is is Illinois noticeably less talented than even like his Wisconsin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd say at this point, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess when I'm immediately I start thinking about the running backs and I'm like, well, there you go. I mean, you know, multiple NFL player after NFL player for sure. I guess like trying to play bully ball if you have a bottom three roster in SEC West against people who are going to have really good defensive linemen who are going to have enough of them they can sub out. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I, I could very well be, be very wrong. I'll be able to. Do you, know, do you know who currently has the highest rated recruiting class in 2022 in the Big Ten West? <laughs> I believe there was a group text on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, is it still? I, I was it's, on vacation a couple days. Still Illinois. It's Ohio State, Penn State, Rutgers, Michigan, Maryland, all in the East, and then at number six, Illinois. <laughs> wow. So uh, Bielema, Clay Helton, who else? Uh, the next name on the list I think is going to be interesting just to see the reaction to because it's always interesting to see the reaction to it. Jim Harbaugh. He's been somewhat of a roller coaster in our coach rankings the next few years, and where he finishes this year might raise a few eyebrows. He has been as high as like six or seven, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he won't be six or seven this no, year. No, I can safely say that he is not <laughs> six or seven this year. I had him at 32. Wow. All right. I don't know if that's high. I don't know if that's low. It's right there in the middle. Am I the low man on him? Where'd you have him? 42. Wow. I would say you're probably going to be the low man on him. Yes. Okay. I mean, and that's the thing is like, can you name 41 coaches better than Jim Harbaugh? No, but you can probably name 25, 26, (laughs) right? Definitively better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know, Jim. I don't know, man. I think Harbaugh's at the time now where you buy. Like, I think it's buy low time on Harbaugh. Like, everybody's ready. He still had three 10 win seasons, and the other one was a nine. He's had some pretty good success, and I think you have to throw out this past year. I think this year is massive for him, but I I just think you can't – and that's another interesting aspect of this whole discussion is what do you do with a COVID year because a lot of programs imploded. But I don't know. I think you guys are being too hard on Harbaugh. Twice he is – oh, go ahead. I can't give away where he's ranked, obviously, but what's interesting to me is not so much the number next to his name as much as a couple of coaches that are directly ahead of him on the rankings where I'm like, it's like, huh, that is, it's interesting situations that I'm sure we'll get into on Wednesday. Michigan fans are going to see it. And just like the immediate association of who is right ahead of you is going to drive them crazy is what it sounds like. They're going to say that Jim Harbaugh took the Wolverines into the final game of the regular season twice with a chance to win the Big Ten East, and play for a Big Ten championship. Twice he has been there in the final week with a shot. Like, that's all you want, right? You just want to be able to have a shot to win the championship. The issue becomes what happened in that last game of the season and how far it has made it seem uh, from uh, from actually being in championship contention. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next, next coach that I think will be interesting is Matt Campbell because that is definitely one of those kind of – well, what are you ranking him based on? But <laughs> he's going to be so, so high; it's going to be off the charts. I got him at eleven. We're at peak Matt Campbell Ooh, season yes. right now. I'm higher. Iowa State fans, I want you to know since you guys pull <laughs> up my Twitter every day, I am higher on Matt Campbell than than Chip Patterson is. I, I got him nine. There you go. I so yeah, he will be uh, he he will be stock soaring right now. 
Um, all right, and then it should be. Yeah, absolutely. That may finally the last name that I think will caught Mike Leach. It's just it's won't get again. Won't give it away. Just you see some of the names that are surrounding him on both above and below, and you just kind of like, huh? That's in our pre-talk when we were just talking at the beginning of this podcast. When we were talking about coaches, interesting. I had Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach, kind of similar to the discussion we had based on our mailbag not that long ago. I thought these two would be, I'll be intrigued to see where these two coaches come out. And it kind of goes back to the personality thing. Like, I think they've benefited from their personalities in some cases. Some people hate it, um, but I think they definitely have lifted their profile as coaches because they're both out there in different ways. So I... I think that I am biased against Mike Leach because I'm just sick of it. I'm just tired of the <laughs> shtick. You know, I was I was here uh, in pirate. Yeah, I was living that blog life. You know, back in 2010, like after he gets over the um, like the lawsuit with Texas Tech and you know the swing your sword and, and all our different rants. It's like Washington. Watch. It's it's all caps. Watch. Washington State coach Mike Leach gives epic rant on blank. And it was just like a mad lib. You know, he would just go on a rant and you'd write about it. And everybody would say, oh, look at the, the quirky little coach, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it got some attention and then it ran out. And now he does it. And those of us who've been following Mike Leach trying to create viral moments for more than a decade, I'm just exhausted. I just don't think it's funny anymore. It's it. I am being unfair to somebody who has found ways to win uh, double digit games in Lubbock, Texas and Pullman, Washington. And I am docking him because I am tired of these epic rants at your press conferences. 48. Let us have our own epic rants. You stay out of it. Leach. Come on. Did anybody have him top half? Uh, I have him top half, by the way, 60, like, you know, top 65. Or excuse me, uh, like top 32, like top 33. Yeah. I have him pretty much right on the cusp. Same. Yeah. Just I, the guys are a, a good football coach at taking programs that are under-resourced and getting into bowl games consistently. Yeah. I mean, he's he's not a good recruiter, and there's certain guys who probably don't want to play for that. But if you are a program that is consistently set up to have the worst roster in your division, a lot of the time, Washington State, you know, Old Texas Tech, Mississippi State, not a bad guy to have. He can probably get you to bowl games. It's absolutely absolutely a fair assessment. I'm acknowledging that. Uh, yeah, I'm. Just a little bit biased. Come at come come at me, Klanga. Let's go. So keep your eyes peeled again. Tuesday, it will be 65 through 26, released on CBSports.com. Wednesday, 1 through 25, all Power 5 coaches ranked. Tom Fernelli has put in all the work to compile the results and write it up for the site. And on Wednesday, we will be reacting to the full 1 through 65 list. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Finnelli. You can follow him at Danny Canelli. You can follow him at Bud Elliott 3. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.